What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to a special bonus segment of the Education Research Reading Room podcast. The podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. It's a little different today, the ERRR podcast, following on from the last ERRR episode with Michael Pershing, I was contacted by my arch nemesis in the UK, Craig Barton, who runs the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. Craig said that I'd stolen one of his prime guests in beating him to the interview with Michael and told me that he'd make me pay for it if I ever did it again. I replied with a similar threat. But after a while, we both remembered what we got into this podcasting caper for, that is, to bring quality discussions about teaching and learning to educators around the world. Once we'd reminded ourselves of our common ground, we realised that there was an opportunity here. We could do a tag team interview of Michael, with Craig picking up from where my interview left off with Michael, recapping some of the key points and taking the interview both deeper and wider. So, if you enjoyed the last interview with Michael, you want to hear more from him, and you're keen to hear what this Craig Barton bloke is all about, then listen on and enjoy. And if you haven't already subscribed to the Mr. Barton Maths podcast, as much as it hurts me to say this, it really is very good, and well worth checking out some of Craig's other episodes too. So, without further ado, here's a bonus follow-on to ERRR podcast number 51, a discussion between Michael Pershing and Craig Barton. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I was delighted to welcome back to the show, Michael Pershing. Michael is a teacher of mathematics in New York. He's a keen blogger, consumer of educational research, author and classroom experimenter. He's also one of my favourite people to talk to. Now, a bit of background on this episode. Regular listeners of the podcast might remember Michael came on the show back in 2019 to talk about his use of worked examples in the classroom. Since then, Michael has continued his research and experimentation, which has culminated in a book, Teaching Math with Examples, that I was lucky enough to read a preview copy of and absolutely loved. So I wanted Michael back on the show to talk about what he's changed his mind about and what his worked examples look like now. But then a certain Ollie Lovell very selfishly invited Michael onto his Education Reading Room podcast and asked him all the questions I wanted to ask, plus a load I would never have thought about. So instead of pulling the plug on my proposed conversation with Michael, I decided to tweak things and instead frame our conversation as a direct follow-up to Michael's conversation with Ollie, creating a Persian double bill. So if you haven't listened to part one with Ollie yet, please check out the previous episode in my podcast feed as I've released it there. And in the language we often like to use on this podcast, it's prerequisite for part two that's coming up now. So following on from Ollie and Michael's conversation, I wanted to know exactly how and why are mine and Michael's approaches to worked examples different? Because we've both tweaked things since we spoke in 2019. Then I wanted to cover some new ground. What role do mistakes play in worked examples and when should we introduce students to them? 
And then a fascinating area of research. How about assigning names to worked examples, such as this is Craig's example. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And finally, if Michael were to become a YouTuber, and I think it's only a matter of time, what would his online worked example videos look like? Now, I knew I would enjoy this conversation with Michael, and thankfully, I was right. He's so super smart, super funny, and very open to a deep discussion about his ideas. I certainly came away, sorry, with loads to think about. Now, just before we crack on, a reminder that I've got a whole host of online CPD opportunities available, both free and premium, covering a wide range of areas. Just visit craigbarton.podia.com, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, enough of me. Let me introduce Michael Pershing. I really hope you enjoy this one. Perhaps not as much as you enjoy the conversation with Ollie. He's very good interviewer, Ollie, you know. But I hope you enjoy this one nevertheless. And as ever, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast a fan favourite I'm describing you as here, Michael, uh, right over from from the US. So firstly, welcome back, Michael Pershing. Thank you so much. Um, Now, Mike, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. And before we get down to business about why you're kind of back on the show and what we're going to talk about today, I just want to give you an opportunity just to reflect, because it's been around about 12 months since we spoke last. You were on the um, Teaching From Home series, reflecting on teaching during lockdown um, over in New York. So just whether you take this as kind of uh, work-related or whatever, just how have the last 12 months been for you? I'm I'm wondering, if is there anything you've enjoyed about it? And what's perhaps something you've struggled with? I'm, uh, I'm in an optimistic mood. <laughs> you know, the, the weather in New York is spring light, spring light this week. Uh, and the truth is, is that reflecting on 12 months ago is a very, it's a very fruitful, it's a very positive way to think about these things. Because 12 year, months ago, I was in a very different situation. Yeah. Uh, uh, both professionally and personally, professionally because you know the whole world was crashing down. Personally, my wife was a couple months pregnant. We hadn't told anybody. It was scary. Uh, uh, and then this August, we had a lovely, lovely boy, and I started biking to school to avoid the subway here in New York. I started biking to school, which is a beautiful thing, and I, I, I in a way, I enjoyed that. And I've been in person at school, uh, increasing amounts of time. They, they're, they're finding ways to let more kids back into in-person school on a given day. More of my classes are in person. So things are getting better. Things are only, things have, at least especially right now, things are, are feel like they're getting better. So, so there, I've had things that I've enjoyed this year. I've, I've enjoyed teaching in person whenever I can. It's so much better for me. I get so much more out of it personally. Yes. Uh, than than just being interacting entirely through computers, and that's been a joy. And the I've got little kids. You've got uh, you've got how old's your? He's two two years two years of age at the moment. Yeah, I, he's uh, I, dri- driving us mad. Oh yeah, it gets worse in my experience. Oh, don't be saying that. Don't be saying. That. <laughs> it does. People say terrible twos. I, yeah. I and then and then they catch you because when you when you got a three year old and they and you complain, they're like, oh, threes, three days, <laughs> and then a four. You're like, oh, oh, four. You don't know about four. It's just each year a different thing. But 
uh, we're so excited for playgrounds to have play the weather be yes. more minimal yes. playgrounds. So, so I've had things that I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed growing family. I've enjoyed professionally more time in person. Looking back this 12 months, I would say the worst part was, you know, 12 to eight months ago. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and things have been looking up since. That's great. That's great. Fantastic. Well, um, again, just as a kind of prelude to this, you know, I always ask my guests what their favorite failure is, uh, Michael. I wonder if there's anything that springs to mind for you, um, again, in the recent past, perhaps in the last 12 months or so. Well, it's, it's interesting. Most things have gotten better, easier when I can see children in person more. Uh, there are some things that have gotten harder. And I, I, I'm pausing here because part of what made it harder is that I learned about things that need to happen, that the student needs, that I wasn't even, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Why, that I wasn't even coming close to meeting their needs remotely and now I understand them better. So so uh so I'll tell you a story about that. I teach third graders here. That's year three, I think. For okay. Yep. No, eight or nine. What are you talking? Kind of yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, about eight, eight, nine years old. Yep. Eight, nine years old. And um I've had a student who um who has a hard time seeing. Uh she, she has vision. She's able to see things, but it's not easy. Mm. And uh I was just doing my best when we were all over computers with this student. Uh, recently, only a couple months ago, due to uh, things involving the school and rules that are too complicated to even begin to explain, I was finally able to see the student in person also. And that's when I realized uh, that there's actually, she has a lot more that needs to happen uh, to help her see things. Mm. And as a matter of fact, the thing that's the worst for her is paper. Okay. Because she can't magnify it easily. They don't have a setup for her. Yes. So she can magnify it. If it's on the computer, she can make it huge. And yes. so uh, I've been failing to show her things that she can see for months and months and months, and I didn't realize it. And now it's kind of – that's opened up a whole new avenue of failure for me because now I'm <laughs> learning for the first time what a student who can't see very well in the ways that she can't see very well uh, would need – to be able to see things like visuals and fractions. Yes. Uh, that's what I'm teaching right now with them. I'm teaching the third graders fractions. My go-to is lots of diagrams, mm -hmm. shade this in, cut this up, connect these numbers to these pictures. It's all incredibly difficult for her. And uh, and it's pushing me to, to try to understand better. So there's, good, there's a good thing there too. I mean, the, there's a lot of good things about that. The good thing is that I'm learning something about what she needs and I'm hopefully going to do a better job teaching her. I'm learning about what students like her need. I'm also realizing that the computer-based option, which it, it, for most students, I, I'm telling them, try to use paper if you can. Mm, Let's yeah. get you away from the screen. It's yes. actually a godsend for her. Yes. She, she benefits tremendously from it. So that's making me think a little bit about this year, I don't, I tend to think every once in a while you see a headline, you know, this is going to fundamentally change schooling. No, I don't think so. Fundamentally, if computer, we, yeah, no, it's not a good idea in general, but I, I, it, it does make me think uh, a little bit more carefully about how important it is to have options uh, mm -hmm. for a student like my student who's in this year three class, this third grade class. So it's all, it, I'm thinking a lot about this kid right now.
Just, just on that, Michael. Now, again, this is something we'll probably come on to later when I start talking about silent teacher and we start comparing and contrasting our approaches. One of the most common questions I get asked is, is how does this work for visually impaired students? If, if they're in the classroom and they're watching you at the board, or in, in this case, if it was me at the board kind of rolling out this worked example, it's, it's, it's a real problem because, um, you know, if they, obviously they'll be sat near to the board and perhaps they've got a teaching assistant with them who normally would perhaps be able to read out what's on the board but, but i'm doing the worked example in silence that's the whole point to kind of cut out the the, the audio you know a section of it so that students can focus on on the visual i guess and again not wanting to kind of take us off on a tangent that would be possibly one advantage of your approach that because there isn't necessarily the need to be watching the board all the time students could have a physical copy of the worked example ready done in front of them that can perhaps kind of get around this 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 the visual impairment issue if that makes any sense at all it does, though. Uh, I would have to design the work. So one thing I've learned, I know nothing about this. Honest to God, I know. Yeah, me I know, neither. <laughs> I, know, I know a week and a half. No, I know that's not true. I know a couple months worth about my specific student. Yes. There are people yes. who, who have depth of knowledge, and I just yes. don't. But uh, speaking from ignorance, what I've learned <laughs> with my student is, is – uh, listeners of your podcast might be familiar with uh, uh, working memory. Uh, mm -hmm. My student can only focus on very, she has to zoom things up in, she has to zoom the image up. So she can only yeah. focus on a specific piece of yes. a picture yes. at one time. So the more complex the visual is, or the work example is, she can only take in a little bit of that information at a time. The rest of it needs to be held entirely in working memory as she reads. So I would need to design vastly simplified worked examples, I think. Though she's doing all right. I, I mean, I, I don't, maybe, I don't know. My student, she's, she's great, this kid. She's, she's, she's funny and, and thoughtful and she seems to be doing okay. So maybe, I don't have a great sense of, and I'm sure it differs by student, how much she can hold in her head at once that she's taking in, say, a, a printed out, already prepared worked example. Um, I just don't know. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I was um, speaking to Doug Lamov um, on the the last podcast I put out. And we were talking about some of the the positives that that teachers can take from the online remote teaching back into the classroom, and we talked about possibly retrieval practice and so on. It strikes me that for students like that, or really any student, that the fact that you can access what the teacher's done in the class, possibly kind of permanently without having to rely on your notes or scribbling things down and so on, the, the, the teacher can make a copy available. It strikes me as a potential positive from this. And I see a lot on Twitter now, teachers who in, in England who've just returned to the classroom, that they've been so used to over the last six months using either OneNote or Google Docs or whatever it may be to record things so that the students have got access to it. And now it's kind of a bit like all up in the air because now the students are having to, to watch the teacher do it on the board and if they miss it it's it's kind of gone it's this transient information so teachers are trying to get the kind of best of both worlds and perhaps thinking well is there any advantage to students writing things down in books perhaps actually let's have it all kind of you know stored in the cloud or in folders somewhere and so on it's, it's interesting isn't it that i think that there certainly are some positives that we can take technology wise for all students from from what we've learned from remote teaching absolutely they don't need to be at the center of mm, instruction yeah. to still be useful. Yes.
That's a good way of putting it. Good way of putting it. Right, Michael. Anyway, as I said, there's a danger I'm going to go off on tons, tons of tangents here. So let me tr- try and steer it back. So a bit of background um, while, while you're on the show. So <laughs> as I was talking to you just before we started recording, I'd planned to have you on the show for a while now with, with your excellent book that we want to talk about. And then my nemesis from down under, Ollie Lovell, he, he has the cheek uh, to, to invite you on the show, undercut me, and not worse than that, ask all the good questions. So he asked all the questions I wanted to ask and then about 30 other brilliant ones. And it was an absolutely fantastic interview. So firstly, I'm annoyed at you, Michael, because I thought we had some kind of golden handcuffs deal here where you only appeared on my show. So what, what have you got to say about that before we, before we get any further? Uh, Michael Pershing's got to look out for Michael Pershing. <laughs> if, uh, I, if playing both sides of the, uh, of the ocean is what I need to do, You'll do it. I am looking out for number one. Fair enough. Fair enough. We no, can't argue no, that. no, no. It's because I knew, because I knew, I knew, because you've been so nice in having me on the show a couple of times already. I knew in my head, I thought, is there going to be more to talk about? And I knew there was. I knew, I, I, I knew there was a lot to talk about. And there definitely is, and there definitely is. And listeners, I would recommend at this point, if you haven't listened to the conversation with with Ollie and Michael, stop what you're doing now, listen to it, because we're going to kind of assume a bit of prerequisite knowledge here. We're going to refer back to things that Ollie and Michael spoke about. So so give that a listen. So um, you spoke with Ollie, Michael, about um, why now felt the right time to write your book, uh, Teaching Math with Examples, and it wasn't driven by anything other than that you felt like you were ready at this stage, you'd, you'd built up enough experience and so on. What I'm interested, though, is, is, is what is the research process for a book? like this look like because i'm assuming having spoken to to you over the last few years you've kind of read everything that there is to read about worked examples so is it did you find more stuff to read or was it kind of trying out some new experiments what what did the actual process of putting this book together look like well first of all I, i i read lots of new things uh while i was writing this book so uh there's that's one thing that excites me about this topic is that I think that while it's been worked examples have been talked about in many different contexts, but there's even more out there and mm-hmm. even more to think about and even more to read about than people I think sometimes appreciate. So that's, that's one thing that excites me. And I, I felt very lucky when reading, when, when, when working on the book to discover more and more stuff there was, I, I, I left things on the table. There were things that I didn't get to talk about that I, that I had sticky notes on my wall saying, <laughs> don't forget to put this in. And then I said, I can't, I can't. there's no room. Uh, which by the way, gives you, uh, answers the question a slightly different way. Cause that tells you a little bit about my, my research process. It's very haphazard. I, for better or for worse, I've never written a book before. Uh, I was, uh, uh, I, I, I wish that I was the kind of author that was able to sit down and say, well, I now need to read everything on this topic and then this topic and move in a very systematic way. Mm. Uh, that's just, I've learned not who I am. I'm a very, uh, I, I chase my curiosity and I get excited on one thing. And then I spend a couple of days looking into it. And then I kind of am left with these things that I've read and they sometimes are sticky notes. There's sometimes notes in a notebook that I, that I kept, but that my reading was not systematic. My reading was, let me try to understand things that I don't yet understand. And then when I run into a rabbit hole, try to capture that in my notes, uh, in my little spiral notebook that I kept or these sticky notes that I had papered over my wall. And my experimenting is also one of the nice things about being, you know, in, in the classroom and writing about research is the experimenting can happen organically. 
and I, I don't want to say thoughtlessly, but uh, impulsively. I every day is a chance to experiment. So I I felt lucky that while writing this book, there were things that I encountered that in my reading that I said, oh, I should really. I should give that a, a second look. Mm. I, sh I should try mm. that today. That would be perfect for this class. And I was able to, to experiment as I continued learning more in a way not that different from the trajectory in the previous however many years of learning about worked examples, but a little bit yes. accelerated because I was reading more. Yes. And again, it, it, it's up to you, Michael, whether you answer this now or just kind of tease it for later. But was there anything big you changed your mind about? Anything that, even though you'd done a lot of reading on worked examples over the last few years, in researching this book, you, you were kind of surprised by it and it led to a bit of a shift for you? Well, I'm an unsystematic person. That's, that's, the, that's the big lesson. <laughs> I'm, I'm haphazard. And so there's things that I've been aware of for years and I... I just didn't do anything about it. So one of those things is 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 what's called faded worked examples or fading mm -hmm. fa uh, fading procedures. Uh, the idea there is that uh, students benefit from studying worked examples. The goal of studying a worked example is to become able to independently solve a problem on your own. But sometimes the gap between the worked yes. example that you're studying and the problem and what you're able to do on your own is immense. And so how do you bridge that gap? And that's teaching. That's, that's the whole business. One thing that has uh, emerged from the research, especially in algebraic context and kind of complex procedural context, is that you can knock out steps of the worked example. So present a worked example. Let's imagine that it happens in very clean procedural steps. So it's a six-step solution. Yep. And then you present a new problem and knock out the sixth step and say, have kids do that last step and then knock out the last two steps. And in this way, the idea is that uh, students are given support through the overall structure, which uh, provides meaning to the practice because they're not just uh, practicing an individual step out of context. Yes. You know, you can ask kids to divide both sides by three or both sides by four uh, if they're solving an algebra problem. And that's a very simple problem. But it, uh, the point is, that, that students will be better equipped for, for using that in more complicated scenarios if that example is shown in the broader context. So it's like yes. a big complicated equation and the last step is divided by two uh, from both sides. I'm sorry, trying to describe this. No, no, I know. I, know. <laughs> I don't know if this makes any sense. Point it does, is, it definitely does. Point is you're preserving a meaningful situation for, for students even as you're asking them to focus on a very specific part of it. Yes. And uh, I said, that's great, but that's useless for many years. <laughs> I said, that's great, but this seems unnatural. It would take forever to make these things. Yeah. Also, it would be boring because yes. uh, it's the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. No one's going to like this. And uh, that, that's just kind of how I was thinking. There's a lot of ideas from research that don't turn out to be useful in the classroom, and that's fine. I wasn't a hardliner about it. I wasn't going around telling people this is a terrible idea. I just, in my head, I just never used it. Yep. Okay. And so I'm reading this thing as I'm, and I think the original draft of my, of wherever this was in my book, uh, the original draft had a paragraph saying something like, this has a great research pedigree. People, it, it turns out really well in research. And I just, I don't find it useful. And that felt kind of, as I was sitting with that, I was thinking, is that true? Do I not find it useful? I should try it. Yeah, so, yeah, then, yeah. so then I, I, I was having, uh, I, I was teaching an Algebra 1 class, which in the States covers um, studying simultaneous equations. 
Yep. And uh, it wasn't going particularly well. People were making mistakes kind of seemingly everywhere at every stage. No patterns to the mistakes. <laughs> so I said, I, I should try this. And, the, you know, I typed it up and I was realizing I was doing this. Hey, this, this is, this is kind of nice. I kind of like this. This is a nice structured way of doing this. And then I was blown away in the actual classroom that I was having fantastic conversations with children as they called me over and asked for help and said, why is this not quite right? Or, and, uh, and I realized that, that, that this was actually quite useful. So and just to, just just so I get my head around this, Michael, are we talking? So you've got your traditional kind of fully presented work example. You've got your kind of independent problem, and then what have we got? Kind of one kind of bridging work example that's got the fade in process uh, involved, or one or two. What, what what did it look like practically when you tried it? I, I think what I've seen in research is like five ish. Yeah, I've I've seen that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knocking out. If it's a five-step procedure, yes. take your time. Knock out one step at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what I did. That's what I did. And what was beautiful about that, uh, what I saw with my students, is it gave everybody a chance to get every little bit right. It was it was mm. comprehensive coverage of the procedure. So yes. every, every every little thing got a moment. And, uh, and it didn't feel like – sometimes as teachers we say, practice this. It will be good for you later, which is true. And there's a place for that. But what I liked about this is that it was happening in the context of, I didn't have to say that. They, they could mm. see why this was useful. It was happening as part of a full problem, a full simultaneous equations problem. Do you think is, well, what's your takeaway there? Is it, it's useful for multi-step algebraic procedures and, and that's it? Or do, uh, is there another place for it? Have you used it since? Well, uh, I've used it since. I've used it in teaching uh, in my mind, I think, well, if you have a complicated procedure where uh, you could write many different examples and systematically knock out steps. Yes. Uh, not everything's like that. Uh, uh, some things are much more complicated. Writing proofs in geometry yeah. uh, sometimes could be like that. There are cases that could be like that. It might be useful, but but there's other cases where it's, it's you can't, easily get seven problems that are really, yes. really that closely similar. Though you probably could get a smaller version of, of like a, a more constrained set. Uh, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say there's probably certain types of proof problems that are, mm -hmm. that are, mm -hmm. that move in lockstep in that way. But uh, yes, when there's a complicated procedure where the procedure kind of looks the same every time, pretty much. Yes. And yes. when students have a hard time focusing on each individual step, uh, that's that's one of my takeaways. Fading is useful there. Another takeaway is, in some ways, a uh, bigger picture, which is there's a place for practice that's happening in meaningful contexts. There's a there's a there's a case for practice that focuses on little things in the context of a larger meaningful activity. So so there's a there's there's time for what I call this in the book part task practice. Part task practice being we're just going to focus on two x equals five. 3x equals 6, 7x equals 10. We're just going to focus on that type of problem because mm -hmm. that's, a, that's, that's just a very small part of a larger procedure, but we're just going to focus on that little procedure uh, just taken on its own because it's a useful prerequisite. But there's also a place for whole task practice, which is when you're practicing a little thing in the context of a bigger thing. So uh, there's a whole worked example, but one step missing. So students mm -hmm. recognize that you're practicing this little thing but it's also in a meaningful, more complicated context. 
Uh, it's the easiest examples of this, I think, come in physical activity. You could train weights to strengthen your arms or whatever. In theory, I've never done this, uh, but you, you could. <laughs> uh, but just to your listeners know, I'm actually very, very strong. So oh, I can that, see you. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. On the screen here, yeah, I know it's it's well because it's my my shoulders. But uh, <laughs> uh, right, so so you can practice strengthening, say, your shoulders or your arms by doing you know an isolated exercise, uh, just that's focused on the shoulders. You could also do that in, in the context of swimming. Say you might mm. have like a drill in the pool where you're swimming with some kind of resistance. Yes. Uh, so you're isolating that, but it's, it's in a broader swimming context. Uh, okay. And, and so you seem skeptical. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm just trying to picture it a little. Um, I, well, again, I'll be honest with you. Michael. I, I was skeptical about the whole fading thing myself because it's, it's, it's interesting. I've been guilty of this myself, right? You, re, you read something in research and it's the next big thing. And the, the thing with fading, it's so easy to sell the dream of it. This is what I find because you can knock up examples, right? So I, I've seen on Twitter loads of examples of, of, of faded worked examples. And I could never picture myself how it would practically work in, in, in the classroom because just, just the, the pure, how many flipping worksheets am I going to need to hand out? How long is this going to take? And, and so on. But I agree with you for a kind of procedure that, that often looks the same that you can, whether it's kind of, ex, I, I've dabbled with expanding double brackets or something like that, where it's, you, you're going to be doing the same steps again. You can tweak one thing and it'll still look the same. And um, I think, I think it can work there for that. With, I'm struggling to picture myself this, this idea of this kind of isolated practice, but as part of a bigger picture for, for, for math. Can you just give me, give me an example of, of, of that, Michael, or, or kind of clue? kind of reiterate um, a previous example you've mentioned just so I can I, I can see it with swimming but I'm struggling to see it uh, in maths well sure so uh, I think of completion problems as, a, as an example of this so uh, take a proof a geometric proof trying to prove yep. the two triangles are congruent yep uh, and uh, say that you notice that your students are not having a lot of success using uh, a deer, uh, side angle side. Yeah. They, they're, they're misidentifying side angle side situations yeah. with other congruent triangle guarantees, uh, angle yes. side angle. So how are you going to work on that? So one thing that you could do is mock up a worksheet or, or, or just practice with feedback. Uh, here are two triangles. Are they uh, side angle side or angle side angle? And that's a perfectly yeah. good way to practice yeah. that. And that will make a difference. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I think some people might find. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a perfect example, but I think some people might find it useful to do something a little bit different. Uh, in addition, uh, a different kind of practice. So, in addition to that kind of isolated practice, one might find it useful to take a proof and knock out the reasons, or even just one reason. Okay. Knock out a reason. Uh, you've got a proof. It's, and it gets to this kind of climax. It says, and therefore, <laughs> yeah. triangle ABC is congruent to triangle DEF because, and you just leave that blank. Okay, yes, yes. And, and the, I think the case I'd make for that is that it's, it's not that it's better than the isolated practice, mm -hmm. what I'm calling the part task practice, uh, uh, following uh, language that, that's used by researchers, including Paul Kirshner. Uh, I, and uh, anyway... Um, 
I can provide a citation later. But the, the case I'd make for that is not that it's better. Oh, can you hear my school bell? It's nice. Yeah, yeah. It's authentic. Okay. I like it. I like it. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, passing period. That's no. a good. It's not too... Um, often school bells make me feel on edge, but Harsh. that's quite calming. It's quite calming, right. that one. I like that one. Yes. Yes. It's, it's soothing. Sometimes it yeah. comes out of phones because they don't have bells in every room. So that's kind of weird. Uh, what do you mean it comes out of phone? Sometimes... Well, because some rooms aren't hooked up to the bell system. So sometimes... If you're in a room with no bells, it just comes out of the phone. They manage to Who? call it. They call it. Oh, the like come out of the classroom. Oh, right. Okay. Wow. That's less nice. That's a little bit creepier. <laughs> but it's overall, I agree, very soothing. So the, in the context of a proof, uh, I think what's nice about that is, first of all, I think some students can see things in one context and not apply it to yeah, another. Definitely. So, so there's transfer. Uh, I think you're helping students transfer their knowledge about identifying this uh, what shortcut guarantees congruence from one from a kind of a simpler context to a more complicated one. Maybe another way of saying the same thing is there's a lot more going on in a proof mm. than just mm. the isolated thing. You might want to practice ignoring some of this other information and just focusing on yeah. the one thing you're trying to practice. Uh, so it might be useful to practice. And I kind of think about fading in that way, that you, you could practice each individual step, but part of the magic of it uh, when it works, is that you're practicing the individual steps. Uh, but I think you call in your books the the, the atomization. Yes, yes, of the skill. that's right. Uh, you're you're atomizing it, but if you can keep it in in its context, sometimes that that can I think help students connect the dots how to use that atom in that more complex situation. Well, that we might come to that in a bit, Mike. So I'm not entirely sold on the dream of that, but we'll I'll, I'll make a mental note. We'll, we'll, we'll revert back to that. No, this is this is great. This is great. Right. I mean, I'm not entirely sold on it either. I, <laughs> it's the best way to be. It's the best way yeah. to be. Um, right. So I thought what would be useful here is listeners can can listen. There's a really fascinating section of your interview with Ollie where you went through each stage of your worked example process and explained exactly what it looked like justified it and so on. Um, but I wonder if you could just provide just a, a very brief outline, a bit, a bit of a recap for listeners here, Michael. Just give us the headlines of what, what, what's, what's the, what do you call each stage of your work to sample process and just briefly what happens in each stage just to set the scene if that's okay. Every time I explain this, I'm terrified that I'm going to get it wrong because in practice, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I'm flexible. Yes, like of course. a lot course. of teachers, I'm flexible and I change things. So I always have to try to make sure to remember what I actually say. Yeah, because uh, uh, everything is contextual, of uh, course. But uh, let's start with this: uh, Why do students sometimes have a hard time understanding a worked example? Uh, that's a complicated question. Here's an overly simplistic answer. The overly simplistic answer is that sometimes students don't understand what the worked example is talking about, and uh, that can be because there's procedures in there that they learned months ago and no longer remember. It could also be because the problem itself is very complicated and there's a lot to take in and it's a yeah. lot to take in the problem and uh, all these component parts when it's not fresh in a, in a kid's mind or person's mind. So uh, very often, but not always, when I'm worried about this, I begin with uh, a stage that I call noticing and remembering. Uh, this can happen in a couple of different ways. I could show something to students and I can say, Hey, do you notice this? Do you remember this? Uh, I could also use it as a, a quick warm up problem. A lot of teachers use these. I use these sometimes 
kids come into the room, I say, hey, everybody, take out your pens and your notebooks, answer this question. And uh, the question is designed to help students notice key things in some image, say it's a graph. And I want students to notice that the scale is not one by one, but it's by mm. fives in the y-axis. So my problem might be designed to draw attention to that. Or I might show the diagram and say, hey, everybody, what do you notice? And make a list of things that they notice. Or I might say, here's a review problem. Uh, find the slope because I'm about to show them a worked example that uses slope. And then yes. I will say, okay, today we are studying uh, a new way to, I don't know, write equations of lines. And uh, I'm going to show you the problem first. And then I'm going to show you a solution. And here's the problem. I'll show students the problem. Uh, I will not show the solution at first because I would like them to make sure they understand the problem. And mm. once I feel assured that students understand the problem, I will say, okay, now that you understand the problem, you might even have ideas about how to start it, but we're not going to talk about that right now. I'm going to show you a solution. And I want you to study the solution and put a thumb up or that's my signal in my classroom. So I don't have kids waving their hands while other students are trying to look, but I say, put a thumb up when you're done reading it, even if you don't fully understand it. And then students read through it silently. While they're reading through it silently, I'm trying to look into their eyes and see into their souls. <laughs> I'm trying to see, does this look like people who are carefully studying this thing? Does it look like people who are not carefully studying this thing? Yeah. Uh, very often, if students are not carefully studying the thing, I will need to you know, uh, probe a little bit, maybe explain a little bit, make sure everybody's on board. But if it looks like everybody's uh, been able to take it in and thinking seriously about this, which happens more often than not in my experience, mm -hmm. I'll say, fantastic. I want you to explain this and have a chance to explain this. And I want you to be able to explain it uh, through a careful analysis. So I, I, I shift to uh, an analysis. Uh, sorry, I, I, I've asked you to analyze this. I'd like you to think very carefully about it through explanation. So very often what I do is I assign partners in the classroom or mm. there are partners already assigned. And I say, turn to your partner and I want you to take turns explaining each step of this until both of you feel that you could explain this uh, completely on your own and you could even do it on your own. And students will then talk about it. And I will walk around the room and try to figure out, do they understand what they're talking about? Is there mm. confusion? Do I need to step in and explain a step? Which step do I need to explain? Yeah. And then I will say, hello, everybody, pause, great conversations. I'll either say something if I feel like I need to say something. Or more often, because I, if I've chosen the example well, they're able to understand it through this conversation, most students at least. Uh, 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 I will then say, here are some questions that I want you to think very carefully about. I want you to answer them. Uh, maybe I'll say, I want you to write them down, the answers. And I want you to to answer these questions. And these are questions that get at the reasoning uh, mm -hmm. in the worked example, in the solution that I've just shown. I want you to analyze it. I want you to explain aspects of it. I want you to think very carefully about it. And students will answer these questions. And what that, at this point, what we're, our situation is, is that we are analyzing this solution. There's a, there's a piece of mathematics that we're all looking at and we are all talking and analyzing and discussing it. And we're trying to bring it to life. And then uh, once students have answered that question, maybe I need to say, maybe we need to talk about what the answers to those questions are. Maybe yep. we don't. Uh, but at that point, I'll say, great. I would like you to try to use this new idea on your own. I would like you to try to apply it 
to a new situation. So all in all, the story goes like this uh, on a typical day. Notice and remember important things that go into a working example. I will then show you the question and then I will show you a solution. I would like you to analyze that solution. And then I would like you to explain how that solution is working and why it's working. And then I would like you to apply it on your own. Fantastic. Brilliant summary that, Michael. Brilliant summary. Well, what I thought would be useful now is if I outline where my approach is at this moment in time, and we can perhaps compare and contrast and, and feel free, if, if anything I say doesn't make sense, feel free just to wave your hands and interrupt me and I'll try and, I'll try and clarify because I think we've got... Well, what I find fascinating, I've said this to you before, we've, you've obviously read far more about this than me, but I think um, a lot of our kind of original source material for this is, is similar that we've read, but we've interpreted it in different ways. We've got similarities, but we've also got differences, which I find absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So if I go to your kind of noticing um, stage, that is what I would call atomization. And my purpose of atomization, I've, I've, I've got a very specific thing I'm trying to do here. And that is that... When my students are taught a new idea, so let's take your example of um, slopes of lines or whatever it may be, equations of, of, of linear graphs. I don't want anything in that new idea, in that new example, to be novel to them. I want their focus to be, how does all this stuff that I'm familiar with fit together in this novel way? I want that to be my student's focus. How does all these components that I'm pretty secure and confident with, how do they go together? So to take the the equation of a line, my atomization process may have involved asking a good diagnostic question to make sure students can um, identify coordinates, can divide their numbers together, are comfortable with answers as fractions, uh, perhaps use the scale, as, as you said there. All those things that I think, right, if any of those are dodgy in my students' minds, that's where their attention's going to be, and they're going to miss the bigger picture about how it all fits together. So my atomization may just contrast of, uh, sorry, may consist of, say, five diagnostic questions, and if students answer them, you know, correctly, or the vast majority answer them correctly, we've spent three or four minutes on it, and then we'll just crack on. Or it may be a starter, it may be some recall questions or something like that. And as I say, the purpose of that is to ensure that as much of my students' attention is on the novel process as opposed to the individual components. Does that make sense? It makes lots of sense. And I think we do the same there, right? It's, it's, it's in essence, I get the feeling that this noticing and my atomization are essentially the same process would be my, my takeaway, I think. Yes, I think, I think that uh, if I have a strong curriculum that I'm teaching with, then the things that that you're calling these prerequisite atoms should have already appeared. Yes, yes. Where, where it gets complicated, though, and it's interesting you brought up simultaneous equations. It's, it's a classic one, this. For simultaneous equations, actually, a lot of the um, kind of atoms may be new to students. So, for example, things like making a decision whether we add or subtract simultaneous equations to remove the variable. Now, Kids will have never encountered that before until they meet simultaneous equations. It's, it's a new atom. And yet, if they're, if they're not secure on that, trying to figure out the whole process of, of solving simultaneous equations, they've absolutely no chance. So I would do what you were describing before. I would deal with that in isolated practice. I would say to students, right, 
part of this new big idea that we're going to get to soon requires you to be really good at this specific thing. Now, you've never seen this before, so we're going to isolate this specific thing, and we're going to get really good. So anytime you see two equations, you don't even have to think about it. You know immediately whether we're adding or subtracting those. And any, so if there's a new atom, if there's something new, part of this big idea, I'm going to isolate that as well. I'm going to have to do some extra teaching of that because it's new to kids. And, and, then once, and then it'll be kind of bundled together with all the other atoms that are familiar so that when I introduce this new idea, hopefully as much of my students' attention as possible can be on how these things fit together. D -d Does that make sense? Oh, the hands up, I like oh, it. Hands up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Michael, go. <laughs> yes, Mike, yeah. So, so I just want to make sure I understand. So yeah, you're saying yeah. before you've taught uh, the technique, the, the, before you've taught, you can add these together to, to solve uh, a simultaneous equation, you would say you'd give, say, 2x minus 3y equals 10 and 2x plus, uh, no, shoot, uh, that's impossible, but, uh, but 5x <laughs> plus 3y equals 13 or whatever. And yep. you, would, you, would, you would say a rule, like if you see 1 minus 1 plus, you should add. And that's even before they know why they would be doing that. Exactly right. And that is a complete contrast to what I used to do. Because what I used to do, um, when I was... I mean, sometimes I wouldn't even assess the prerequisite knowledge. I would just assume it was fine, and, and that often led to problems. But even after I realized that was um, a good idea to do that, I would still bundle together these new atoms with this new process. So I would teach simultaneous equations all the way through. So I'd say, okay, step one, we need to decide whether we add or subtract. Okay, let's do that. Step two, now we need to simplify them. Step three, we need to do... And the kids were nodding along because I was leading them. I was giving them cues, all this kind of stuff. But then they came to do it on their own. They didn't have a flipping clue what was going on because it was just so much for them to focus on. So now by the time they see the whole process, I want a lot of those decisions to be automated so that their focus can be on... How are these automated? Just essentially, what order do these automated decisions happen? That, that's my rationale. So, so that makes a lot of sense to me. I think there's other ways to do it. Uh, so I am a person who is, uh, by temperament, I, I very much prefer to teach skills. This comes back to what we were talking about earlier. I prefer to teach individual skills in a meaningful context, in the context as much as possible that shows yes. how, how they're going to be used and and uh, I prefer not to practice things in that type of isolation. So how would I do that given, given uh, and I don't know how strongly I believe in any of this. A part of my experience is being a teacher. And I think part of what teachers who are interested in research have to offer the world is a kind of flexibility, uh, recognizing that contexts are yes. different and that this, the work is complicated. So absolutely. So, uh, I'm not a hardliner about this stuff, sure. and, I, and I believe that it's good not to be a hardliner. But okay, but but given my the values that I that I that I that I just expressed, what I would probably do, what I often do, is I wouldn't try to teach adding and subtracting at the same time. I would yep. focus just on cases where adding is useful. So I might make sure that students can add the equations. Uh, perhaps with some atomization uh, there, but I wouldn't, I would say, okay, first, here's all the cases where adding is useful. And I would teach adding as a strategy. And then I would yep. bring in, I'd say, well, you can't add in these cases. What happens if you add, you don't eliminate a variable. Yep. So yep. I would teach that kind of as a second problem type, uh, which I think means that I don't need to ask kids to practice 
making that choice between adding and subtracting before they know what they're doing with it. Yeah, you see, I think I'd see that choice. And again, this is a flaw in my teaching. I don't think I've put enough emphasis on decision making. I think I've assumed that the prerequisite knowledge is like, can you um, can you add these equations together? Can you solve this? Can you do whatever? I, I haven't considered decision making enough as prerequisite knowledge. But if you make the wrong decision, you, you've no chance. You've absolutely no chance. So I quite like activities, and I use well, my interpretation of variation theory, where I would say, okay, here are two equations. What are we going to do now? Are we going to add those or are we going to subtract them to remove the variable? Okay, I'm going to add them. Now, let me change one thing. Does that change the decision we make or not? So, and even, I wouldn't even go as far there as to kind of possibly not even add or subtract them. I would just be isolating that decision. And all the way, I'm selling the kids on the dream that we're getting one step further to being able to put this all together. My fear is if I jump into putting it all together too soon, even to do, right, here's a case where we add them, and now let's solve the entire simultaneous equation. My fear there is... their attention goes on to other things. I want to make sure each bit is as secure as possible to give them the best chance of putting it together. But I agree with you. There are other ways of doing it. It's just I seem to have settled down into this way and, and feel quite quite comfortable with it for the majority of, um, of multi-step procedures, if that makes sense. Well, what I don't what I, but if you say, <laughs> okay, if you say problem one, I'm going to teach you how to do problem one. No, then, no, no. No. No, it's not. It's, it's, I'm going to teach you atoms that'll work for anything because the decision you make will determine what type of problem it is you kind of go ahead and solve, if, if that makes sense. So Great. I'm going to teach you to make the decision to determine what step you do. And then once you're in that next step, okay, now you recognize the form of these equations. So that triggers, ah, that's that thing. That's that atom. So now let me go ahead and solve this. So it's almost, you're equipping them with all the tools And then we can do lots of practice of the whole thing together where we don't have to categorize them and say, right, this is a type one, so we do this. This is type two, so we do this. The kids have got all the tools together. I I don't know if that makes sense at all. The only thing I don't understand is that I Mm. think, I think, if I'm understanding correctly, (laughs) that if you, because you can can set the kind of bounds on what problem your class is is working on at any time. Yes, yes. I I could say we're working on, on problems right now that are of the form, you know, AX plus BY equals C. And I don't know what letter I'm up to. EX minus (laughs) BY where we're, and, and, and I can say we're learning how to solve systems, simultaneous equations with addition right now. And then I can, okay. And then I can do another skill, a related skill. What do you do when addition doesn't work? Well, you could do subtraction Yes. And then I could still focus on the decision. I could, yes, that's, I could, true. that's true. I could, I could then say, so which type of problem is this that we have now? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. yeah, I agree. Good, 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 good. I, yeah, I think we're there. I think we have the same kind right. of what I call atoms and, and yeah, but possibly in a slightly different order. But okay, I think, I think we're fairly similar with, with that stage, Michael. Well, this is good. This is good. <laughs> this is where I think we start to, 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 to go our separate ways. And it's really interesting this. I, I, was, I was fascinated listening to, again, your, your interview with, with Ollie, where you, you talked about this. So you favor the kind of pre-written worked example from, from start to finish for students to study, whereas I'm more the kind of, I roll it out and I do silent teacher first and, and, and then narration. Now, I see, the more I think about your approach, the more I like it, the more I see advantages. So 
One huge advantage, and this, I can't believe how long it's taken me to realize this, but if I'm doing a really complex problem, it's really great if I've had chance to write this out beforehand and it's looking neat and it's correct and so on, because then all my attention can be on studying the responses of my students, asking the right questions and so on and so forth. Now, Silent Teacher helps to a certain extent. And for listeners who don't know, Silent Teacher is me modeling an example from start to finish in silence. That helps in a certain to a certain level because I don't also have to think about questions I'm asking at the same time, which is what I used to do, write, ask, think, and so on and so forth. But I still see yours as a much more effective way of making sure that my example's neat, it's correct, and my attention can be on the needs of, of, of my class. So that's that's one thing I'm, I'm really having to think hard at at, at the moment. Is, is that one kind of big advantage of your approach that you see, Michael? That was, uh, yes. The short answer is yes. I don't need to say too many words. Yes, you nailed it on the head, Craig. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Now, this is where, again, where I think it gets interesting. So... For listeners, uh, after atomization, phase one of my approach is silent teacher. Phase two is narration. Now, narration is where I ask what I think you would call your self-explanation prompts. So the, the questions that you give your students after they've studied the worked example, after they've discussed with their partner, that's when then you give them a series of questions that you want them to answer. I think I use pretty much the same questions or the same style. That's certainly my intention anyway. But I give them after the silent teacher because what I want to do there is silent teacher is to kind of set the scene so students can focus, watch it being rolled out. I'm trying to control the cognitive load, control attention. And then the self-explanation prompts direct attention to specific steps in, in silent teacher to see if students can kind of understand why I did that, this, what came next, what that decision process was, and so on. And um, so it, it strikes me as interesting that your self-explanation prompts come quite a lot further down the process than, than mine do. D does that interest you? Is, is that a conscious decision? Did you think that students aren't ready for it until a bit later? Uh, well... The, the first, the reason why they come later for me is because, because, uh, because I would like them to explain the example, uh, yes. in full to themselves yes. so that they, uh, will on the one hand have a chance to engage in self-explanation, uh, though the things get a little bit messy here. Self-explanation isn't necessarily explanation to others. You yeah, hope that course, there's some of kind of uh, interaction between them, but uh, but I'm well, just hoping... on that. So really sorry yeah. to interrupt you, Michael. Just on that because that that was something I was going to get to. My understanding of the self-explanation literature is that it really should be, certainly in the initial cases, directed to oneself. Like Chi Chi talks about this a lot, that it's a very kind of internal process, and that as soon as you are needing to explain things to your partner or to a teacher. It's kind of almost like the next level up from that, because then you've got to try and put your thoughts into words. You've got to potentially gauge the reaction of the people you're explaining it to or so on. So that's why I made the conscious decision to move my self-explanation prompts to the start where there's no, um, there's no discussion happening at this stage. This is still students watching on their own, trying to almost come to terms with it themselves before they get the opportunity then to, to discuss. That, that was my kind of justification from my reading of the, the, the self-explanation literature. My, my take on this, I was one of the things, besides for fading, one of the things that's been the most exciting for me to learn more about is self-explanation mm. literature. And, and, it's it's messier than you might think with my <laughs> yeah. overall impression yeah. uh, on what exactly is going on inside a, yeah. a person's head. So 
uh, and there's different definitions. I can't remember who exactly, I want to say Rankle has this paper that I love. And if I'm able to find it, I'll send it to you. Uh, where he essentially says self-explanation is really important. Lots of people mean different things yes. when they talk about self-explanation. It's probably true that self-explanation is, is kind of a category title. And there's lots of different kinds of self-explanation and some will be more important than others in different situations. So let's, let's, let's talk about that for a second. Cause that relates to why I'm willing to kind of defer. Well, mm. let me actually just start with the big picture and then come back to self-explanation. The big yeah, picture yeah, yeah. is pretty simple. I just don't think it's a good idea to ask uh, really the kinds of really specific analysis, the kinds of whys and the what if questions yes. that I want students to answer if they don't understand the explanation. The, the example. And yeah, so true, I, I want, true. I want to make sure they understand the example. That's yes. fundamentally what's going on. Yes. It's okay. not. So, so uh, uh, there are times when I move straight to self-explanation prompts because I'm very confident that they'll, they understood yes. the example. Uh, or there's times when I just explain it because I think the best way for me to make sure everyone understands the ex example will be for me to explain it. Yes. Uh, there's other times when I think that it'll be more engaging and uh, uh, more fun and more cognitively, I don't know, uh, worthwhile for students to explain it on their own. They're close. They might as well explain it to each other. I can call on shy children and give them a chance to shine. It's yes. all very yes. nice. Uh, okay. But self-explanation. So what is self-explanation? You said when you were describing the self-explanation prompts purpose, and I don't want to hold you to this. I feel bad about yeah. that. This, this is not a gotcha. <laughs> but, you, but you said you're going to help kids notice things that they didn't notice. They might not have noticed. You're making sure that students will notice things. Uh, I, hmm. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not setting you no, up. No, no, that's, no, no, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's entirely valid. That's a very important purpose of self-explanation. I think Chi's research, is that how you pronounce your name? I feel, I always. I, I'm going for Chi. I could be wrong. Okay. So in Chi's research, uh, she uh, asked students to talk aloud while they yes. were studying worked examples and then saw who was successful later solving problems, yes. uh, especially transferring to new situations. And she analyzed the students who were successful and did kind of a post hoc analysis. Uh, and she saw that people who were more successful spent more time, asked themselves, wait a second questions. Yes. Wait, why is this? How's that? And yes. they noticed more things. And I've experienced this in the classroom many times. You, 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 uh, the people who say, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. No problem. I got this. Yeah, I understand it. They, uh, spoilers don't understand it because <laughs> yeah. they didn't even notice what they don't understand yeah, yeah. and didn't pause. So that's a really important thing that a self-explanation prompt can do. Renkel in this, uh, paper about self-explanation says, well, there's other things that are happening in self-explanation. It seems like another purpose of self-explanation, one that might be particularly helpful in mathematics, is connecting this particular solution to general principles. Yes. Imagine yes. for a second a diagram, and I think Rankle's got this diagram, if I'm remembering correctly. You got like this particular solution, and you've got this other particular problem. Yep. And how are they connected? Put a big question mark between them. It's, you can't connect particulars to particulars. There needs to be some generalization yes. if they're different in any way, and they always are. So the, what self-explanation can do is it can help you take this particular explanation, which you understand, connect it to general principles, which yes. are then applicable to other particulars. So uh, that is something I think about a lot when I'm writing self-explanation prompts, that there are two distinct purposes I think I said this at some point with Ollie. I don't remember. It was a long conversation, but 
uh, and I was in quarantine at the time, like not the, not the quarantine that we talk about where it's like, Oh, I can't go to the restaurant. So I call that quarantine. I mean, I mean, we, we had a COVID positive person in our household. Wow. Uh, so anyway, but, uh, that's my excuse for not remembering, but my overall point is that, uh, that's another thing that self-explanation prompts can do. They can help at the very least, there's two purposes for self-explanation prompts. They can help people notice things that they would otherwise skip over. They can help connect these particular mathematical symbols and yes. solutions to general principles that are generally applicable. And uh, that second purpose shouldn't happen right away, I don't think. I think you want to make sure you understand the particulars before you generalize. Ah, uh, this is interesting. So again, I think we do, I may disagree a little bit here. I, I, I completely agree with the um, the purpose of self-explanation. I, I too want my students to be able to generalize. So my logic for putting the self-explanation prompts in stage two narration is because what's coming next, stage three, which I call read the maths, which I got from, which I'd nicked from you when you first, uh, when you were on the show a couple of years back and you described to me this, this notion that you want students to read mathematical solutions like they would read a paragraph in English. And I thought that's, that's beautiful. That I really like that. So I have this stage next where students just have a bit of time on their own, just reading the solution, looking at those self-explanation prompts, but then they have the opportunity to discuss with the person next to them what the answers to those self-explanation prompts are. So I would rather the prompts be there to focus their attention, to set up the discussion, as opposed to have the discussion first followed by the prompts. But again, I don't think it matters too much, but that's that's my way of doing it. I want to direct attention first so that students can have a more informed discussion as opposed to, and I think this perhaps are failing in my teaching, you have students kind of, you say to students, discuss the worked example, explain it to each other. I think a lot of students struggle with that, whereas the self-explanation prompts can really guide those discussions. That That's my logic anyway. Yeah, if I, if I, I, I see that, I don't give kids a ton of time to discuss the, to explain yes. the example. I move quickly there. If that works, it works. I, uh, especially works better with older students. Yes, I, I find that too. I uh, find that too. And maybe, maybe for younger students, I would be more inclined to use more do you notice this prompts, uh, the ones that could guide them through Yes. making sure they notice everything in the work example. I should be clear. I'm not asking. I usually ask students to continue talking to their partners about the deeper questions also. Mm, yes, so, yes. So, no, I appreciate so that. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I agree that those are rich conversational things. I, I, I like when kids discuss reasons and ideas. Yes, I think that's, that's, that's a good time for that. And it's a setting them up to succeed in that process instead of just kind of like, why do you think this? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, so it's interesting. We do have seemingly the same concerns and the same pieces, but they're just a little bit off kilter. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's, it's in, yeah, it's it's interesting. And well, just to kind of wrap up this story, because I'm I'm fascinated in your take on this. So, after silent teacher narration and read the maths, my next part is your turn. So the related related problem, and and you may know I I have it kind of structured in a way that I, I have my board or the sheet split into three. So you've got worked example on the left, self explanation prompts down the middle, and then the related problem, the your turn on the right, so students can kind of compare and contrast across. But here's the thing I've been thinking about a lot recently, particularly with remote teaching. Um, stage five, I have a stage five, which I call show call, to borrow a Doug Lamov's term. And this is where 
essentially I showcase students' work, both students who've made a mistake in the your turn that I think is quite an interesting misconception, an interesting thing to discuss, but also where it's the kind of climax of the work example where I will showcase an example of excellence. So a, a student who set the your turn out beautifully, everything's great and I'll bang that under the visualizer or whatever it may be and students can essentially use that to mark their work and then we'll crack on with some some practice now what's been interesting is that whilst um kind of remote learning's been happening obviously it's been a lot more difficult to um see the students work what they've been doing in your turn and and obviously there's lots of kind of shared whiteboard platforms that people are using whiteboard.fi or whether it's google docs or google slides people coming up with clever ways of doing it but it's a lot more difficult than it is just wandering around in the classroom, grabbing a mini whiteboard and so on. So what I've been thinking about with the, the climax to the worked example, but I don't like it, and this is hopefully going to steer us down at something I've been wanting to discuss with you for a while, is I like the idea of discussing misconceptions and mistakes as part of the worked example process. And show call for me always felt like the natural way, because if a student's made a mistake in the your turn, the chances are other students may have made that mistake, or at least it's going to provide something interesting to discuss. So before we crack on with the practice, in a really positive way, let's say, okay, I'm just going to show you Josh's work. Josh has made a mistake, but I'm so pleased he's allowing us to share it. Right, let's have study Josh's work, see if we can figure out what's going on and why. Now, that always felt to me quite a logical thing to do. But what I'm thinking now and particularly remote teaching's really brought this home to me because I haven't been able to kind of access students' work, is when does it feel right for you, Michael, to, to, to kind of show mistakes in this, this worked example process? Do you, do you want it to happen before practice, like I've been doing for the last few years, or do you want students to practice the right way of doing it first before being exposed to a mistake? Do you, well, what, what's the research say about this, and what's your take on, on it? Because I notice it doesn't form an explicit part of your process of the way you've described it, although I know you do use mistakes as, as part of your process. That, that's right. Uh, so I'm not aware of research that says it's a bad idea to do what you're doing. I, I, yes. <laughs> that's not the way research <laughs> yeah, works. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Uh, my overall, I, my, my read of the research um, goes, and this is my idiosyncratic way of reading the research. I'm not... I'm, I'm haphazard, right? I, yep. I'm not systematic. I'm not an encyclopedia. Yes. I can't cite you a study. What I, what I can do is I can kind of read a lot and then try to make sense of it and then try to summarize it. So here's my read, my understanding of what I've read. Yes. Uh, and it starts with answering the question, why is it good to study misconceptions? So the same way that we've said, why is self-explanation good? How do worked examples work? What, asking these types of questions to me is fundamental. So how do students learn from studying mistakes or misconceptions. Um, all right, so let's let's list them. One thing is, and this is what a lot of teachers are hoping for, it's almost uh, uh, inoculation is in the air. It's a vaccine, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. right? We'll, 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 we'll give you a weakened version of the mistake and you'll never make that mistake again. <laughs> You're protected good, yeah. from the mistake. I like it. Uh, <laughs> and maybe that works, maybe that works. Uh, maybe that works sometimes. Certainly does work sometimes. Um, I think probably when it does work, it's not as an inoculation because uh, that's not the way the brain works. <laughs> that's the, uh, uh, but what it is, is it's, it's you get a chance to contrast an incorrect approach yes. with a correct approach yes. really carefully. Yes. 
So you're thinking really hard about what makes the wrong thing wrong and what makes the right yeah. thing right. And I think in general, that's, that's, that's to me the deeper answer of, of why studying a misconception can be good. It's because misconceptions often focus on mistakes happen the most where, uh, where the ease of applying an idea is at its hardest. So they often point to important distinctions, important ideas, important cases that you want to cover. And yes. so studying examples can be kind of, uh, uh, a big arrow pointing to this thing. Study this. Kids yes. need to learn about this. Yes. Uh, uh, so, so why is it? So, what do I do? So, it's true. I think that uh, it's useful to study mistakes because it helps you. It gives you an opportunity to explain, to contrast the right way of doing things with yep. a wrong way. But that's very difficult early on in the learning process. Yes. It's, uh, yes. it's very difficult because, um, again, and I go back to self-explanation. Why is self-explanation good? One of the reasons for me is because it connects particulars to generalizations. So for me, the ideal cognitive thing that's happening when you study a mistake is you're saying, this is wrong because, and then you go to a generalization. The generalization yes. is because what you're, because when I, uh, because multiplying is the same thing as finding the area. And that's not what they did here. Uh, I think the source, the deeper source of mistakes is just the absence of a strong understanding, not applying mm -hmm. a strong yes. general understanding to this case. So I want to make sure students are going to be successful in that. I want this to be a practice opportunity. Uh, and I want to make sure students are going to be able to say, here's my positive understanding. And I am applying my positive understanding of this to this negative situation. Yes. And, uh, uh, and I'm haunted, frankly, I'm haunted by my early experiments using mistakes in the classroom where I would proudly design a lesson around the most popular mistakes I saw students making on Monday and I'd bring come in on yeah. Tuesday and say, well, what, is this right or is this wrong? And then, of course, since everybody had it wrong on Monday, on Tuesday morning, they're just as likely to say, this is all wrong. Uh, they, yeah, they, yeah. You know, that's exactly right. You should distribute yes. Uh, yes. Uh, the the the. the the power of two to, to everything inside the parentheses. So, yeah. uh, and then I had a very awkward situation where I really just baited people, uh, giving them a chance to believe what they believe more strongly and then yes. set them up yes. for me saying, no, that's not true. Yeah. 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 I was teaching at an all boys school at the time and, uh, uh, where behavior was something that people talked about a lot <laughs> and I would get these very rowdy classes out of this where people were just very angry at me. Yes. Uh, I, I, I totally provoked them. So, so that's part of it also that I'm a little bit haunted by those early experiments. And I want to make sure that if I'm pointing out to students, Hey, this is wrong, that they will be able more or less to supply the explanation of why it's yes. wrong on their own. That's what I'm aiming for at least. And yeah, does, does research say that? I think research says that, but I can't cite a thing. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. Again, my, my reading is that definitely mistakes are a key part of learning. You often hear that cliche kind of banded around, but more specifically, as you've said, to, I've, I've always thought to really understand something, you've not just got to know why the right way is right, but, but why the wrong way is wrong. You've got to be able to articulate that. I think when I'm in the classroom and I see as part of my show call, the fifth stage of the worked example, so before practice happens, if I see a student's made a mistake, 
it feels like the right time to, to kind of flag that up to, to, to the rest of the class because that mistake's real. It's not been a manufactured one. It's out there. Perhaps it's some mistake in my explanation or something like that. That feels like a valid discussion point. But I think I'm moving away from showing manufactured mistakes. So kind of ones that I've, I, I think are common um, at that early stage. I think for me, they come after a certain amount of practice once students have got a bit of fluency, a bit of confidence, a bit of competence. So I can now say, okay, we're getting really good at this. Here's, a, here's an attempt at somebody who's solved it. Perhaps it's me who's solved it. Well, what's gone wrong here and why? I think that feels to me the right thing. If, if a real mistake happens, let's talk about it, but let's hold fire on those manufactured ones for a little bit. I, I don't know what, what your take on that is. Well, I, I, I agree, basically. I basically agree. It's interesting to think about, for me, it's interesting to think about, because uh, I share that kind of intuition. It seems natural. It sounds right. It feels like an appropriate thing to do to um uh to talk about a mistake when it happens but why why am i doing that why does it feel natural for me part of the answer is this for me at least part of the answer is is got nothing to do with well it has a lot to do with learning but it doesn't have to do with i don't know what uh cognitive science it doesn't have a lot to do with Mm. that instead has to do with this i want students to feel like i'm explaining I i want them to feel if they made a mistake, they know why they made a mistake. Yes, they feel okay. Yes. <laughs> it's 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 for me. It's more about the 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 classroom as a social environment. My relationship with students. I don't want to feel as if uh, uh, I'm not responding to the things that my students are saying. I want to be responsive. I don't want to devote a tremendous amount of time, you know. But I I think for me it's it it's I just want to I I want to respond. You said this. I should respond to it. Well, would there ever be, would, would you make a conscious decision that you're always going to talk about a mistake at some point during a, a concept? So like, let's say, let's take simultaneous equations and you, you've taught them for years. You've always seen students make certain mistakes. Would there be ever a time where you teach a class where you're literally just going to teach them the right way? And there's no point at any stage where you're going to get the whole class watching you and you're going to explicitly show them a mistake or would a mistake always come in, come, come into your teaching at some point? Well, practically, I, I think... Uh, let's talk about my ideal vision of teaching because my yeah, in practice sure, sure. version of teaching often fails <laughs> yeah. to meet my ideals, uh, which is a way of saying in practice, I don't think, I think there's, well, it's a complicated thing. On the one hand, I don't, my usual thing that I do, if I see a lot of mistakes on a quiz or something, my usual response is to design a quick lesson the next time that mm-hmm. shows the right way to do it, often with a worked example. Yep. Uh, I don't off, I don't always say it's important for me to show this as a misconception right now. Sometimes I do. Uh, so the short answer is, I think, I I don't know if showing a misconception every unit is in my ideal. Uh, maybe it should be. I'm not really sure. If, if, as I'm reflecting now by this very interesting question you asked, as I'm reflecting now, it seems to me that, that students are constantly in contact with mistakes. It's it's not the case that if you don't present a mistake, yeah. that students will never see yes. mistakes. They make mistakes all the time. The reason to make a mistake a focus of a lesson is to draw attention to it, to discuss it. To um, yep. So I think it would be good if I used more mistakes. But I also think that uh, – if it works okay, sometimes when you don't do this, it might be because there's lots of mistakes and there's a lot of dialogue around mistakes, forgetting uh, what you designed for the class. Uh, yes. 
but I don't know. I mean, I'm confusing some points here, honestly, because the, the argument for showing mistakes is not to make sure students see mistakes. It's to give them a chance to to explain why it's wrong and to be successful. In, in, yes. In, so I don't know. I'm not sure. This is a yeah, good it's question. An int- it's it's an question. interesting one. But we'll, we'll leave that hanging there because I, I want yeah. to discuss something else with you, Michael. So... Um, now, again, a bit of background for, for listeners here. I, I, I often get involved in kind of little bits of Twitter storms and stuff like that, but I never saw this one coming, and, and you, you were good enough to kind of chip in and, and advise me on this. I was, um, I was shown, for, for the benefit of listeners, I was, uh, came up with this idea to do a diagnostic question every day on Twitter, post it on Twitter, but also share two students' explanations, real-life explanations from the website for two of the most popular wrong answers. So my diagnostic questions are A, B, C, D. Let's say question, uh, let's say option A is the right answer. The data suggests B and D are the two most popular wrong answers. I put a little PowerPoint together, a little image together, and the challenge for students was, can you get this question correct? And then can you understand why the two students' explanations below are wrong and how would you help them? And I thought, this is innocent. What could possibly go wrong here? But I made the error, and I now realize it was an error, of putting kind of... um, clip art images here. So one student was a boy, one student was a girl. I was careful with ethnicity and so on. But as soon as I put it out there, I thought, "Mm, this this could go wrong. But that then led to a whole more interesting discussion. And you you were good enough to share with me some research on this about this whole idea of kind of attributing names um, and kind of ownership to, to worked examples, whether they're right or wrong. Now, this is a fascinating kind of area of research, and I've only had a chance to dabble in it. But well, what's your take on this, Michael? I'm interested both in, in what role kind of naming students' work in terms of examples, right and wrong, plays in your teaching, and, and what your reading of the research is. Uh, do you mind if we start with the research? Of course, please. Okay. okay. If, if, if there's anywhere on the internet where you're allowed to start with the research. I figure it's here. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, So there's, let's connect this to maybe a broader literature. I was surprised at first I saw these papers and then I read more and saw more. And, and so I realized there's actually a broader phenomenon here that this name issue is part of. The broader question is this, do details help or hinder learning? More specifically, do details help or hinder transfer of learning to new contexts? So mm. here's a totally unrelated paper uh, that I, the common factor is uh, this amazing researcher, amazing cognitive scientist, uh, 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 Martha Alibali, who's, uh, I think, just phenomenal. And she's on Twitter and people should follow her. Uh, and she's done work on a lot of amazing different things about procedural and conceptual understanding about uh, the equals sign and equality. And, and some of her work recently has focused on this question. So here's an amazing paper that she shared. Uh, I think it's her research. Uh, if not, it's someone in, in her circle. Uh, you showed two diagrams of, I can't remember what it was. I don't know, maybe like a, like a ladybug or something. Okay. The, the lesson, the goal, the learning goal is to learn about how insects are, I, I don't teach science, how their parts <laughs> are connected to their bodies. I don't know what you learned, but it's, it's about the parts of an insect. And, yeah, okay. um, you, and you're going to show a specific picture of an insect, labeled diagram. Yeah. And yeah. eventually you're going to ask students to apply that knowledge to a different species of insect, say. Okay. And uh, so here's the experiment. Is it better to have a cartoon ladybug mm-hmm. or a more realistic looking picture of a ladybug? Okay. Interesting. 
And I don't know what you'd think. Uh, I think my instinct's probably a, a, a realistic one. I would have thought. Right. I think what she and this research finds is that, on the one hand, it's kind of cool to see a really realistic picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the cartoon is more useful for teaching and for learning okay. and for developing transfer. The car- and, and the of thought course, there yes, yes. is that it's um, it's more abstract. It's yes, closer to general yes. knowledge, and it's easier yes. to abstract that to insects in general. Of course, and students of course. might see the specific photo and say, oh, this is a very interesting thing about yes. this specific bug. Um, and it's about prompting generalizations. Okay, so now let's talk about names. Now what would you expect? Here's two different strategies that we're sharing with a class. Would you like to yeah. call it – and it's an amazing – the papers are called So Much Fun – the paper about this is called. Wait, let me look it up because I wrote it here because it's so much fun. Uh, does it matter how Molly does it? So, <laughs> so, so uh, one procedure. You, uh, it's a worked example. Oh, I've got one. One example is yep. uh, it's got a procedure and it's and it's labeled. This is Molly's strategy. Maybe you go all out. Maybe you include a picture of Molly. Maybe okay, you give yeah. a whole story about Molly. Molly, <laughs> Molly works for a construction company and is trying to design a bridge. To, <laughs> to, to and, and you give like a whole backstory. It's like Molly's uncle died, but Molly's you know working through it. I mean, you might worry. So, so, so right. And, and then this is what Molly does. And then another one's just like here's a strategy. Or okay. maybe you say something more abstract. You say here's a strategy called. Uh, 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 simplifying. I don't know. You come okay. up with some name yeah. for it. Yeah. So, okay. Similarly, Alibali and others research suggests that the um, the more abstract one, the one not attached to the names, might be easier to transfer from. And they say two. Yes. They have two hypotheses. One is it's just distracting. The details are distracting. It seems from mm-hmm. my read of their stuff, they don't really believe that, but it's it's out there. Okay. They That's think it's they think it's a generalization, an abstraction phenomenon. Yes. They think it's more like the ladybug photorealistic thing. Where yes. if you if you ground it in specific details, it's easier. We we tend our minds inevitably go and say this is Molly's strategy. This is what mm. Molly does. This is not what we have to do. This that's is not a generally now. Okay, that's very interesting. I think. Yeah, um, fasc- fascinating. So when I first read that, I thought, well, I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, and then I said, I do agree with it somewhat. I've had this experience many times at the end of a kind of uh, back. Well, I still do problem solving lessons sometimes, but when I was really doing problem solving lessons uh, every time, and my idea was we, students would learn from explanations that their friends give of how they solve the problem, uh, that didn't work out so well. And eventually I stopped doing that. It's been 45 minutes. Uh, uh, I will keep going though through this. <laughs> no, of course. So uh, what's it called? So, uh, yeah, so, so I think one reason, I think the phenomenon that they're describing, these researchers are describing uh, about the difficulty of making generalizations from, from specific people, mm. the way that we kind of kind of compartmentalize that and say, well, yep. that's not, I don't need to learn that. That's what they do. I understand what they do. I think that happens a lot at the end of problem solving lessons when kids share ideas. If, mm. uh, if, if I call on a student and the student says, hey, oh, here's how I did this. I did that and that and that. Uh, I think people not along, they can understand yes. it, but mentally they're not saying I need to use this for many different problems. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, but I thought, you know, I share work examples all the time. I include names because it's just yes. easier to talk about. Me them. too. 
right? Yeah. I want to say, why did Molly do this? Why did Molly yes. divide both sides? But otherwise, it's a, it's a tongue twister. It's it's like, yeah. <laughs> why did the student in this example divide? It, it, it just gets very wordy. And so, can I just clarify, Michael? When yeah. you say you, you you use names, are we talking kind of made up names or, or actual names of made up students names. in this class? Made up okay, names. You, you wouldn't use you wouldn't use say this is Tom's example, and it's a real example, real kid in your class. Well, I, I used to do a. I do that sometimes. I used to do it a lot, and I got concerned mm. about inequities because uh, yep. if there's differences in the confidence level of the students in my yes, class, that's true. it gets a little bit tiring after a while to say, "Well, here's Tom's strategy. Here's Tom's other strategy. Yeah, here's Tom's yeah. third strategy." And like you know, <laughs> there's kids in the class who are never getting named there. Yeah, of course. And of course. Uh, I, I don't. I, I felt. I eventually have come to think that that is. Um, uh, I'll do a little bit of it here and there, especially when it's a student that is not uh, uh, Mr. Speaks out all the time and is a very yes. confident person. Uh, I'll, Could I'll... I just, again, apologies to interrupt, just before I forget, just to clarify this as well. When you say that you wouldn't kind of give a name, a name of a kid in your class, when you're coming up with kind of the, the made up names, might that be an actual child in your class's strategy that you're just kind of relabeling as a, another name? Or would it be one that you've kind of prepped in advance, if that makes sense? Yeah, usually it's one that I've prepped in advance. So kids will surprise you all the time. Students surprise you all the time. They teach you new strategies. Of Sometimes course. they teach you one and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize yeah. that I should teach this. Yep, yep. Uh, but more often the situation, especially as the years have piled up a little bit, is that I'll say, I, I know what I want to teach. I, I know, and, uh, and I'll come up with a fictitious student name and present it. Uh, am I worried about this research though? Mm. Uh, am I worried about this research? So my first response is no. A little, no, I'm not. I, I have to imagine that that this is less of a phenomenon in within the rhythms and patterns of a school year where I'm always showing this example with the name and we're always using it. I, I have to imagine that students get the picture that this is an abstract generalization, not just... And it's the, the same name, is it, Michael? Like, do you just pick a name and it's, oh, I just, it's always... I pick a name of a student that I've taught in the past. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, and are you, again, apologies for, for interrupting, but this, this fa it, it absolutely fascinates me this because, and it's only when I started reading the, the, the stuff that you sent through and also reading responses on Twitter that I thought to myself, like, I've got to be careful of that choice of that name. Like, what do you do with gender of the name and, and stuff like that? Do you give that much thought? Is, is that a concern? Uh, my, for thing, while I do have students who do not identify as either male or female, mm. uh, uh, I my my most of my classes are, are are full of students who are who either identify as male or female. So so what I typically do is I I just try to trade off. Um, okay. I try to trade off. I I. So so I am thoughtful about it in that sense. I'm yeah. thoughtful about 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 the types of names. I don't want to name everybody. Uh, uh, whatever. My 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 children have Hebrew names. So. Yes. Uh, uh, so my, my children are not named typical of white American names. My mm, children are mm. named like these long Hebrew words that nobody can pronounce <laughs> with lots of chaz and, um, uh, and sometimes I put my kids' names in, in the problems, but typically I try to think of, uh, I've, I've, I've been, I've taught students of, uh, in a couple of different contexts. I try to think of those students. Yes. I try to think of their names. I try to, 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 to be thoughtful about that. Yep. Um, 
while still being a little bit nervous about yeah. emphasizing the names and yes. certainly not giving them a backstory. I, yes. I should say that this research is, I think, kind of new and it's still in flux. And there's a very, a very recent paper that uh, that I really like by another one of the authors is uh, another kind of amazing cognitive scientist, Bethany Riddle Johnson. She's yes, she's yes. amazing. Uh, she's behind a lot of the kind of math by example stuff as well, right? She will that's Julie that Booth. One. That's Julie Booth. Ah, okay. But but Riddle Johnson wrote this, I think, along with Ali Bali, uh, this this amazing paper about how procedural and conceptual knowledge is reciprocal. Yes, uh, and also uh, just oodles and oodles on self explanation. Yes, just a, a tremendous. She's written a ton about self-explanation and uh, and patterns, and it's just she's great. Um, both 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 of these researchers, uh, Ali Bali and Riddle Johnson, what I love about them is they get teaching, they get children, they get mathematics, mm-hmm. they get cognitive science. It's you don't feel as if you, you feel as if you're talking to somebody who knows what they're yes, who's not uh, uh, who who gets the bigger picture a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Uh, not the full classroom, but they even do a lot of classroom research. This these, these you know we're always teachers are always complaining about how things are stuck in labs. This this yeah. paper by Riddle Johnson and others, uh, Abby Lower, Kelly Durkin, John Starr. I have it over here because I printed it out. No, I always carry it around. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, they, 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 were, they were in a classroom. They, they went into a classroom. And one of the things they were trying to figure out is, is uh, if the issue with assigning names to these things is uh, an over-specification that, that disrupts transfer. A mm. lot of the things that we've been talking about of the, the you and I do uh, to support a worked example is about promoting transfer. So yes, yes. would this still have a negative effect mm. if we're doing all the amazing? Yes, you got a supercharged yes. worked example <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. that 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 you're asking students to self-explain with. So what they did is they um they had they they said there's solid research establishing that um, comparing two worked examples is uh, enables transfer. Obviously, students mm-hmm. need to be able to be ready for that. That's a big, mm-hmm. big task. But comparing two work examples can enable transfer, promote transfer. So they said, well, what about if you, what's the difference? Would it be bad in that situation to give names? They even have a little, yep. I don't mean to offend. If the researchers are listening, I don't mean to offend you. But the current, the, you should check out this paper because they drew pictures of these kids with the <laughs> strategies. And they, they, they look, I don't know, the... I can't draw, so I'm not critiquing anyone's drawing. <laughs> but the kids look like they've got something, I don't know, perhaps mischievous that they're thinking about. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, but anyway, even though they pro- provided names to the uh, to the strategies and somewhat mischievous faces, somewhat sort of like yep. the kinds of cartoon characters, like with speech bubbles that you were providing on the on, yep. on your DBQ. Yep. Uh, so in that context, they found that names didn't hurt. Didn't hurt, but did, yeah. didn't help. But yeah, just didn't, didn't hurt, hurt, didn't help. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no effect of condition on student accuracy at post-test. So maybe that's because uh, it does hurt transfer a little bit, but if you're doing a lot of other things that promote yes. transfer, it doesn't make that big of a difference. Uh, so this is all very interesting to me. I, it's live research. We don't know the answer. We don't have, I, I don't think, a, 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 the end of the story yet. 
It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It kind of points to a bigger picture, this, I think, Michael, and I'm interested in your take on this. I, I, I do, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I do. Like, I'll read some research, and if I don't like the sound of it, I'll think, and I'll look for problems. I'll, I'll think, is it new? I kind of find out someone who says something else and so on. Whereas if I read something like the self-explanation literature, I think, whoa, that sounds really good. Yeah, I'm going to buy into this and bang it in there. Is, 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 do you reckon there's something similar going on here with, with names? Because... I'm reluctant to ditch the names for, for the practical reasons that you've talked about. And also, like, naively, I think kids quite like them. I think it means that they can actually relate. Because when, when well, the way I'm using it is I'm saying, okay, a student, let's call them Anna or whatever, this is what they think. How would you help Anna? Whereas if it's a bit more kind of abstract, like here is some explanation, and I'm not even attributing it to a human or anything, how would you help this, you know, abstract being understand? It just doesn't quite work. So in my, in my head, like, for, for kids to be able to kind of attribute that reasoning to, to, to a name and then think how they would help that person, that feels to me like something that kids are going to buy into more. But that's just my instincts. And for, God only knows, for the last 15 years of teaching, my instincts have been completely wrong. So it's interesting, isn't it, how, how we kind of react to stuff? I, I, we're reacting. We shouldn't be trusting research without thinking about our experiences, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's nothing nefarious. There's nothing faulty yes. there. We, we should. Yes. Yes, I mean, people true. sometimes call that a bias, but it's not. Mm. You can't... Uh, uh, it would be just as wrong to read research and forget everything you know about teaching. Yeah, uh, that's true. And that's so, true. so that's, that's I, I guess, is kind of bias is that you believe things and then you read research and they challenge your thinking and you try to engage with it and you know, you shouldn't be dismissive all the time. You should be open-hearted. You should be uh, open-minded. Yes. But, but I, there's you. There's a lot that teachers know about teaching that these particular researchers might not know, and they might not know about your teaching, and they might not know about your yeah. children yeah. and your school, the age that you teach. So it's I I don't think there's you got to be a little bit biased. Yes. Interesting, interesting. Um, I'm conscious of time, Michael. I just want to ask you a couple more things, if, if that's all right, before, before we say bye on this. First, just a, a more kind of just general question. Um, you, you mentioned before that there was um, some things in the book that didn't make it in, and I know you're excited by the, the latest research on worked examples. Is there anything that you've come across that we haven't spoke about that you think is particularly interesting? Well, the, the big thing is self-explanation. I, I feel like I just tipped uh, the surface. No, is that the phrase? Is that the idiom? Skim the surface? I yeah, like I, yeah, yeah. yeah, I feel like I just barely tip got of the it. Tip of the, the iceberg. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, self-explanation. There's what I what I what I what I left. Uh, there's two things about self-explanation that I feel like I could have I could have done more with in the book, and I I had like a phantom sad post-it note left on my wall <laughs> after I'd sent in the draft, and I thought, well, I guess I'll just throw this out now, and yeah, yeah, uh, maybe maybe the sequel, uh, but. Right. So there's two things. First is the possibility that self-explanation is not one thing, but many things mm. Mm. is very interesting to me. Uh, uh, the the, the self-noticing, the self-prompting, but the actual connecting to generalizations is, a, is, a, is another thing. And even though we were talking about this earlier, uh, self-explanation is not, I think in Chi's work, it's not taken to be explicitly verbal in the sense that mm. like her, her picture of self-explanation doesn't mean you say in your head, the reason yes. why this is true is because of yes. this and this and this. Well, that's really interesting. What is going on then? Yes. And is there, is there a different effect 
uh, that has to do with the literal verbal explanation to yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, what's happening when you explain to others? Explaining something to others seems like it must involve some self-explanation, right? Yes. I mean, I understand what you were saying before, which is that explanation is cognitively demanding compared to this whatever self-explanation. Yeah, the mysterious. Uh, the mysterious yeah. kind of noticing, prompting, attention, yeah, directing yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, but th given that, explanation must – explaining something to others seems relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, and some ex researchers take explanation to be a form of self-explanation. So it's, it's, it's confusing, it's complex, and it feels like uh, it's also potentially connected to the way we ask students to explain things in the classroom. So is there a relationship between saying to, uh, to a class, here's a good explanation, here's a bad explanation? Right, mm -hmm. right. One thing that I saw – uh, and I think it was maybe in a Riddle Johnson paper towards the very end. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this, but this is great <laughs> is, is, uh, you know, the point raised, if you ask students to explain things to themselves, very often they don't. And part of the reason why they don't is because they don't know what a good explanation looks like. The yes, solution to yes. that, what's the solution to that? How do you teach kids what a good explanation looks like? Well, you can provide bum, bum, bum. A worked example, <laughs> yes. an exemplar of a good explanation. So now we're in this like endless cycle of worked yeah. examples and self-explanations. And that's actually very interesting, right? We're giving uh, exemplars of what good explanations look like. And then we're asking them to self-explain, like, why, why is this a good explanation? And, yes. and it's uh, uh, so there seems like there's this complex knot of, of, of uh, between in-person explanations, self-explanation, and um, and there's one other thing, too, which is that I saw in a Riddle Johnson paper, and this has been tremendously useful for my um, online teaching, is that she raises the point just as if, you know, just the, the so-called flaw of discovery, of simple discovery, just uh, whatever, discovery learning, is that uh, uh, students need to generate ideas in order to learn from them. That's not true. Students need to think carefully about ideas to learn from them. Uh, okay, great. So you could apply that to self-explanation. Do students need to provide their own self-explanations, their own explanations to learn from them? Or can they analyze the explanations of others uh, uh, in the same way that we that worked examples can? So, so the answer is yes. And they've had success in helping students get the benefits of self-explanation. Uh, these researchers, I think Riddle Johnson, had um, by presenting uh, multiple choice Interesting. Uh, explanations. Which explanation best? And Renkel, yes. I think, does this also. Uh, basically knocks out little like a completion problem but for yeah. explanation prompt That's uh interesting. so so maybe what all this points to is that explanations are their own domain of mathematics that need yes. to, to be learned i don't know this is all very fuzzy to me and that is something that uh i just want to learn more about that's interesting. That is interesting. And was was there any other area you wanted to touch upon briefly, just before I ask you one other thing, Michael? I don't think so. I th oh, oh, oh did we want to talk oh, about go, modeling? Go. Modeling? Oh, go on. Yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah, do okay. a bit of that. Yeah, because well, that'll team you up for this final thing. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Go well, for the, it. Well, the other thing is fairly late in the game. I was I wanted to write one chapter of this book, uh, reflecting my experience teaching geometry, where I find mm. my every everything that I know about uh, worked examples works a little bit. It's more complicated there, especially when I'm teaching proof. <laughs> yes. And as I was teaching while also reading and trying to make sense of what I was doing, what I realized, I read this paper and this paper makes a distinction that I thought, well, this is a very good distinction. 
that uh, there's worked examples and there's modeling, yeah. and those are related forms of explicit instruction, but they aren't the same thing. Modeling mm. uh, is when you say, here's what I'm doing. Yes. Okay. And, and, and you, uh, I, you know, it's modeling for people the right way to do something and you're, you're, you're the model or maybe someone else is the model, yes, but yes. you're the, the, the learning is I will do what that person does. Hmm. And maybe I can, as a result, better see myself in those person's shoes. I can see myself as that kind of person. So they study uh, motivational variables. They study things like self-efficacy, like do mm. students feel more able to see themselves as, as competent in this material for modeling. And that's not what people study with worked examples, typically. Uh, 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 with worked examples, it's not necessarily a person attached to it, right? We're back to yes. this again. Uh, it's a text-based or a written, a writing-based, a visual uh, representation yes. of a strategy. The point is not to see yourself as this person doing this thing and learning how to kind of imitate this person. It's imitating these ideas or taking these ideas and generalizing yes. them. So it's yes. like the cognitive world versus the social psychological world. And wow. there are papers comparing these approaches. And I mean, spoilers, they both kind of work and they both mm. seem to kind of work <laughs> as well. It seems to be the biggest concern for uh, in the research stuff, uh, this is Vincent uh, Hugerhide uh, is the author of a lot of these papers. And uh, the concern seems to be especially high for if you're designing an online course. Do you present work examples or do you show short videos of people presenting yes. their ideas? I, that's not my, especially now that uh, uh, spring has come and I'm doing more in-person teaching than ever. <laughs> uh, that's not usually my concern. Uh, but... I do have situations where it's really, really hard to write a concise, comprehensible worked example. And it gets so complicated yes. that I start saying, why am I doing this? Yes. Uh, and is this really going to make any sense? And more to the point, there's situations where, you know, with algebra is actually very special and arithmetic is actually very special. Part of the genius of algebra and arithmetic is that you can pretty much infer the, the process from the product. If you look mm. at a bunch of steps, more it, it, it goes step by step. You can kind of see the, you can't see all the reasoning, but it's 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 pretty much there. Yes. Uh, especially compared to other areas of mathematics, if you look at a geometry proof or a proof in any area of mathematics, there is reasoning happening that's invisible. Yeah. Yes. And if we want to share that process showing just the product at the end might be insufficient. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's another thing I touched on at the end of this book in a chapter on geometry proof and how I've kind of been pushed in that direction by, by some material where the process is not evident from the product. And, uh, and I'm interested in more in that. I'm really interested in trying to understand better. So long story short, I find modeling more useful uh, when the process is not visible from the product. And I, I tend towards more adapting that whole thing we talked about earlier with worked examples. I'm more likely to adopt a modeling approach for, for that different content, but it's all very, that's, that's sort of new for me. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And that, yeah. It, it, well, whenever you mentioned that, when we were swapping notes, I was thinking, yeah, I think I do more modeling. Like my silent teacher is, is it's modeling. It's narrations, modeling. The, the kind of abstraction comes then when the students get to the third stage and they, they read the maths bit, but it's still, it's my worked example. It's they've seen me, they've seen me roll it out. And it's, 
yeah, I was when I did a brief look at the research and I thought, God almighty, if it says that modeling's horrendous here, I'm going to <laughs> have to start burning copies of my book. But anyway, um, right. Let me ask you one question before we say bye, Michael. And this, this, this is related to, it kind of ties together what you've just been talking about there. Um, over these last kind of weird 12 to 18 months, I found myself doing worked examples in three different scenarios. So you've got the live classroom and I've described my process there um, as earlier on in the conversation, silent teacher and all that. Then we've got this remote teaching where if we assume it's kind of synchronous and students are logged in, I was almost trying to replicate what I was doing in the classroom to varying degrees of, 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 of success. Um, silent teacher, I think, can work, but you, you, you don't get, you can't gauge the reaction of the kids and so on and so forth. And you, you lose a lot, of, as you would of any teaching once you're removed from the students. But I find the third type quite interesting. And this is whenever I've been doing work with schools where they want um, asynchronous uh, lessons preparing, so videos, um, or I've done a project with diagnostic questions where we're producing videos that, that students who are stuck on things can kind of watch on demand and so on and so forth. And as part of that, I've just been kind of watching loads of YouTube videos of teachers or tutors essentially doing worked examples in video format. And it's fascinating because they're all exactly the same. They're all a teacher talking through as they write to kind of roll out an example. Um, there's no kind of self-explanation prompts, or if there are, they're kind of embedded in the questions that the, 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 the tutor and so on are, are doing as they go through the video. But it just strikes me as fascinating that none of these videos I'm seeing on YouTube kind of fit in with, with the things that we've been speaking about. So my final question to ask you, Michael, is if, is if you were to be the next big YouTuber, and I can see this coming, to be honest with you, if you were going to branch out the next big YouTuber, here you come, um, what, what would your kind of videos look like for worked examples? Could you replicate some of the things that you do in the classroom, do you think, or do you think you'd have to revert back to this, this essentially modeling because of the format? It's a, it's a good question. I... First of all, my, my instinct to anything that I haven't done before is to say I have no idea whatsoever. Sure, of course, um, of course. That said, uh, here's what I can kind of imagine. I think it would be nice to have, if it's not always possible to do this, but I think it would be nice to say, uh, you know, it, it, to, well, could I, let's put it like this. Is, could, is the thing that I do in the classroom somewhat portable into a YouTube mm. context. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure it is. Uh, uh, you start with some kind of intro that explains what the problem is, uh, uh, highlights anything about uh, a graph or a, a, a picture that, that might not be noticed right away. And you say, well, then here's the problem. Yep. And uh, you point out anything that you might say about the problem. Uh, one thing that would not be replicable and then, oh, just to keep going. And then I could show the whole example. And I could even yep. imagine highlighting parts of it at a time, Yep. Um, even as it's all present yep. on the screen, uh, bringing some of it to the fore, fading some of it just yep. visually so that it's not as prominent. Uh, while, I, while we're discussing different things, I can imagine putting prompts up on there. Um, I could imagine saying, try to explain this to yourself. Yep. Pausing. <laughs> you know, um, I'm loving it, yeah. Uh, and then I could, sure, I could say, and now here's another related problem. Take a moment, pause this video, try it yourself. Yep. Uh, here's a solution. I could imagine providing a narrative for the YouTube yep. uh, uh, situation. That might be a little bit of an adaptation uh, because the social context of schooling 
uh, provides meaning and structure that is not present in a YouTube video, you might want to yeah, you know yeah, massage yeah. the narrative a little bit. Sure, but sure. One thing that's not portable is silence. People, mm. you can't just be have a. I mean, you could. You could just have a minute of quiet in the middle of your video. Uh, but you know, you, that'd be weird. No one would watch that video. It'd be super annoying. People would just be turning your video off. Yeah. Uh, uh, immediately right at the, at the one minute mark i mean or it would become a beautiful thing maybe maybe it'd be end up with a cult following of people who just love like buzzfeed people are going wild over this five minute video of silence uh i mean i there's something beautiful about that there is something beautiful about silence that would be beautiful to bring specifically into the internet and specifically into youtube because a lot of youtube stuff is Welcome to Michael's math page. Today we're going to be studying this. They're okay now. They're just, yeah. you know, we're just, uh, I, that, which seems to be what people want. But uh, it's also, I guess it's the, the, the external environment. Like if you're watching a video, the chances are, even if there's silence in the video, there's stuff going on all over the place, isn't there? Potentially, or unlike in a classroom where if you're having silence, you can probably control that silence. Of course. Uh, hey, silence struck me. And the other thing was the, the collaboration that like we both have as an integrate part of our process discussed with the person next to you. And it seems to me that's, you just can't replicate that, right? It's sure. difficult anyway. I mean, comments are great, but you know, it's not. That's not the same thing. Yeah, so yeah. YouTube's never going to replace schools. <laughs> Too bad because it'd be much cheaper. But, <laughs> yes. uh, but still, I'm 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 pretty blown away by the amount of. I mean, the the, the big thing that makes me. I love YouTube videos. I love math and science YouTube videos. I think they're tremendous. I think it's a beautiful mm. thing that mm. I could, in principle, study. Yeah. I don't know, almost anything. Yep. It, there's not the biggest thing that's hard for me is I will get excited by some topic. I'll go on YouTube and then find something that's just a nowhere near the right skill level for me. Uh, I was going to be like too easy, but no, it's almost always much too <laughs> advanced for me. And I want to yeah. learn more. Uh, maybe what we would want is some way to kind of have some indication at the beginning, like, are you ready for this? Well, here's, here's, mm -hmm. here's a sign. If you're ready for this, if you're not ready for this, go check out this video or something. Yes. Yes. I don't know. I, I would love to make YouTube videos. I, I really just, I think it's great. I, every time I see, every time I watch a math or science YouTube video, I think I should, I should do that. That seems fun. Maybe. I think, I think, yeah, I think it just, yeah, it'd just be fascinating to see how it translates. Yeah. All your thinking, how it translates into that medium, what works and what doesn't. But anyway, I've taken up too much of your time here, Michael. This has been a blast as ever. You'll, you'll have to come back on the show. So what it's got to be the self-explanation book next, right? Is, is this a world exclusive you're giving us here? Oh, no, I don't know. Well, I, I, I tried to write, I mean, this is a weird thing to put at the end of your podcast, but uh, <laughs> this book was salvaged from my previous attempt. So I, I, I thought I was writing one book and then I wrote you right. know, 50 some pages of it. And then I took a look and I said, huh, oh, this book's not going to work. And then I threw it out and kind of salvaged the worked example book from it, right. uh, which seems, and I did that repeatedly. That's kind of how I am as a writer. I just throw things out constantly. So even if I said I was writing a self-explanation book, I would be very surprised if by the end of writing it, it was still a self-explanation <laughs> book. That's just not who I am. But Maybe. 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 Who's to say? Maybe. Who's to say? Who knows? Well, Michael Pershing, as ever, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Likewise, Craig. Thank you for having me back.
have it. There was my interview with Michael Pershing. He's good, isn't he, hey? Um, it's fascinating that I, I could speak to Michael for what, what, however long that was, an hour, hour and a half, something like that, purely about worked examples, and yet come away still wanting to talk to him more about it. And that's after having listened to his wonderful interview with Ollie and read his book. Um, I just think worked examples, they're such an important part of the teaching process. But for about 12 and a half, 13 years, I just took them for granted. They were the thing that I put the least amount of thought into. All my thought went into planning activities, fancy, bright, shiny resources. The actual modeling and explaining, I just kind of made up as I went along. I thought that was the easy bit. But of course, that's the bit that sows the seeds for the, for the basic understanding and then building up to the more complex problem solving later. Um, just before I reflect on some takeaways from this specific conversation, I just wanted to reference back to the uh, wonderful interview that, that Michael did with Ollie and this idea of explaining something to students early on in a learning episode. So explaining the basics to students, how to carry out a method, how to carry out a procedure instead of spending time with them kind of trying to guess it or figure it out for themselves and so on, and then using that time that you've saved to allow them to do that exploration and that deeper thinking with the more complex thought later on in the learning episode. And this notion, I think Ollie in the interview said it was from Renkel, that people are always gonna get confused. You're always gonna get confused in your understanding of something because that something gets more and more complex. So that confusion's gonna hit at some stage, and our aim as teachers, perhaps, is to uh, try and get that confusion to us hit as far along the learning episode or as far along that journey to mastering and understanding something as possible. So explain the basics as clearly as we can so confusion can come at a deeper level of thinking. I think that's such a powerful idea. I really, really like that. Anyway, back to uh, this interview with Michael. Um, I really enjoyed discussing our approaches. I think we've both changed our mind on a number of things since we last spoke uh, in 2019. And I've certainly changed my mind on a number of things since reading research, experimenting, and also the biggest influence is when I'm lucky enough to, to try these ideas out with teachers and students all around the world in, in different circumstances. So it's fascinating to, again, have this opportunity to discuss our approaches. I, I really, really like Michael's approach. I really like the reading of the example. I, I like the fact that as a teacher, I almost don't have to think about what I'm doing during that process and my attention can be on what my students are doing, thinking of good questions, reading their reactions and so on. Um, but at the same time, if we go back to my approach, I like the silent teacher and narration for directing attention to specific aspects of the worked example and controlling the cognitive load by rolling it out instead of presenting it all, and, all at once. There's a definite place for both um, in, in my ex experience and opinion anyway. Um, I, I'm still leaning towards the first time I introduce an idea or a method to students, I'm gonna do it my way because I wanna control that cognitive load and direct attention. But then when we get um, a, a, perhaps a follow-up example so let's take say something I always do adding fractions it's boring isn't it let's say we, we add, add two fractions together and I do it my way the next example which may tweak something perhaps we introduce a mixed number fraction perhaps the denominators are slightly more complex then I think using Michael's approach because um, I think it's a little bit quicker as well perhaps might be uh, might be the way forward that might be the way to combine them uh, but yeah I, I really really like Michael's approach and I just think it's fascinating that it comes from the same kind of body of research as mine but we've interpreted it differently and um, mistakes 
Mistakes are fascinating. Um, I, I've started to think hard about show call, the final aspect of my uh, worked example process. So just as a recap, uh, during show call, what I'll do is I'll circulate the room when you are allowed to circulate the room. And I'll be, I'll be looking at my students' work, usually on mini whiteboards, and I'll be on the lookout for examples of misconceptions, so where students are going wrong, and also this example of excellence that I can show to, to the rest of the class. But those examples of, of mistakes and misconceptions, that's what I'm, I'm really thinking hard about now, how best to deal with them. Now, I think what I'm settled upon now is if I see a mistake that's widespread, so if I see you know, two or three students who are making the same mistake um, or um, revealing the same misconception, then I think that that is the point then where that needs addressing whole class. Because if there's a number of students who've made it, there's a chances are there's a number of other students that are, are also making that mistake that I just for whatever reason haven't seen yet. And even for the students who haven't made it, I think it's a useful discussion point. So it needs it's out in the open anyway, so it needs addressing and I might as well do that whole class for efficiency purposes. But if I just see that mistake perhaps in one student or one or two, possibly not kind of revealing it in front of the whole class and just having a quiet word with those students, maybe that's the way forward because I don't want to confuse. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on mistakes before students have developed this confidence and competency uh, in, in the method, procedure or idea. And then if I don't see any mistakes, my instinct in the past was to make up one, was to have one that I'd made and then use that as a discussion point because I'm convinced in, in, in the power and validity of, of, of using mistakes to enhance understanding. But I think that's too early now. I think that's too early. I'd hold fire on that until perhaps after the fluency practice stage in my model of a learning episode. I think teach kids the right way. If, if, if some mistake bubbles up, of course, address it. Get them practicing the right way. And then once they've got a bit of experience, a bit of confidence, then we can say, all right, here's an example. Something's gone wrong here. What's gone wrong? Why is it gone wrong? And how would you help that student out? So that's my current thinking on mistakes. And that leads me nicely to names. Because again, in show call, I would always give names. So let's say, for example, Josh has made a mistake. Um, I'd politely ask Josh if he doesn't mind me showing his example to the rest of the class, but I'd frame it in a really positive way. I'd say something along the lines of, right, everybody, I'm going to show you Josh's example. I'm not going to lie, Josh has made a mistake, but I'm so pleased Josh is allowing us to see his example because it means we can all understand this mistake and we can all make sure we understand it so we don't make that mistake in the future. So thanks so much, Josh. Right, here's Josh's work. Now, Again, for some students, I wouldn't dream of doing that. And this is where our experience as a teacher and our knowledge of the students comes into play. But when it works well, I think it's fantastic because it creates what Doug Lamov calls this culture of error, where we don't mind showing our mistakes because everybody's making mistakes and mistakes are a key learning opportunity. But now I'm starting to reconsider that a little bit. First, because again, there's the point I've just made, for some students that's quite uncomfortable. And interestingly, it's just as uncomfortable when we showcase excellence as well. So if I say, here's Mirren's work, Mirren's work is absolutely brilliant, let's use this as a model answer. Sometimes that's terrible for Mirren as well. So that's the obvious reason why I'm reconsidering it. But the more subtle reason is, is the research that Michael shared, this, this idea of transfer. This idea that if we, if we kind of assign a mistake or misconception to a given student, either real or fictional, then it almost becomes attached to their work and it's not as easy to generalize that mistake, to transfer it to different contexts. So maybe we need to kind of leave the names off and just say this is an example of work, so it's more general, so it can be transferred. But as I, as I mentioned in the conversation with Michael, that it almost feels a bit too bland, a bit too abstract. 
So then I start thinking about, you know, coming up with these, these kind of generic names and using the same name all the time. And I go back to, to two of my favorite resources by the same author, um, Andy Lutwich, who, who shared one of my favorite authors on Tez. Now, many, many listeners may be aware of these resources. Clumsy Clive and Erica's Errors, one's for GCSE, one's for A-Level. And the idea is that Clive has made some mistakes and you've got to correct Clive's work and help him, or Erica's made some mistakes and you've got to co- uh, correct Erica's work and, and help her. Now, my kids used to love those. My students used to love those because, again, there's something about like helping out another student that you can picture you we're going to help out clive clive's made a slip but we're going to help him out erica's made a slip so we're going to help her out something about that i think allows students to buy into it a bit more than here is just some generic piece of work let's not mention where it's come from what would you do about it to help well who are we helping out what's our reason for getting involved with this but again, that goes back to something Michael and I were discussing. That's me almost kind of turning my back on the research because I don't agree with it, which is, again, I guess what I did for 12 years without knowing it. I was just, but I was more just ignorant of research. If, if research suggests that this isn't a bad, that this is a bad idea to do, surely I should be listening to it if I'm listening to research on desirable difficulties, cognitive load theory, and so on and so forth. So I need to think about this um, a little bit. I, I guess the other option is you make the kind of mistakes about you, the teacher. So you say, okay, I've done this work, um, but there's a mistake in it here. What's the mistake? And that obviously reduces the the, the kind of uh, uh, emphasis on the students who might not like that. But again, th- that, I don't think that solves that issue of transfer. Do students then just associate mistakes with, with what we've done as, as teachers and not kind of transfer them across to... To, to different situations or, or their own mistakes. I don't know. But I just wanted to flag that up because I, I, I just think this naming thing's fascinating. And that's before you get to get into the whole thorny issue of what name do you choose? I mean, if, you, if you're going to make up names, is it a girl? Is it a boy? What, what ethnicity? What, what, what do you do with the name? And part of me thinks... Well, surely the students, do, like, maybe we overthink this. Maybe there's, we, we put too much thought into this and the, the kids aren't that bothered. Well, again, I've, I've nothing to back that up. I'm just guessing on that. So that's something that needs consideration as well. Anyway, I just thought I'd, I'd throw that out there. And I'm interested in, in, in your take on, on worked examples, both in terms of the mistakes. Do you use mistakes in worked examples? If so, how do you do it and when? And names. Do you assign names to, to given pieces of work that you're going to discuss? It's worth considering. I, th- I think it's a fascinating one. Maybe get involved on Twitter if you have any thoughts on that. And I'll retweet it and get a bit of a conversation going. Anyway, uh, all that remains for me to do is to once again thank my wonderful guest, Michael Pershing, and to thank Ollie as well for letting me uh, kind of follow on from his wonderful interview. If you don't follow Ollie's podcast, uh, get, get signed up. Education Reading Room is absolutely fantastic. Uh, to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And a massive thank you to you, my lovely loyal listener. Hey, I tell you what, I've got some absolutely cracking episodes coming up. Uh, some kind of research-based ones, some conference takeaways. And then if it all comes off, uh, a bit of a double bill special with two of my favorite people on the same uh, on the same podcast so we'll see what happens with that anyway you take care of yourselves bye for now <laughs>